0: I'm Tegan, and I'm Eric. This is the Professional Weaver Podcast, where each week we have discussions with weavers and the supply chain that supports us, with hopes to build depth, transparency, and connection within the hand weaving community.
1: This week's episode was sponsored by Comfort Cloth Weaving, a company specializing in heirloom quality handwoven products for the home, as well as yardage for the fashion and accessories industries, and value-added products for farmers and wool growers. Find out more at ComfortClothWeaving.com.
0: Have questions about weaving? Send them to hello at proweaverpod.com, and we will have many episodes dedicated to answering those questions with our podcast guests. This week we talked to Amanda James of Thief and Moth from Madison, Wisconsin. Amanda is a production weaver who creates beautiful handwoven yardage for wearables and accessories. She uses her AVL looms to create yardage that explores the relationship between texture and color. When she works with her clients, it is a collaborative effort to create textiles that exude comfort and style while maintaining the small surprises that come up in weaving. Her work reflects the collaborative effort she puts into the marathon of creating cloth. Consciously, the way color and pattern is placed in the textile allows the design to breathe and appear effortless. We connected through Instagram when we were simultaneously starting our production weaving journeys. It was a huge help to be able to communicate with someone in the same boat, problem solve together, and work towards the common goal of making weaving a focal point of our careers. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Amanda as we talk about what it's like to run a weaving business while having a family, what is the driving factor to keep exploring weaving, and how looms tend to multiply when you're not looking.
1: We started our conversation by talking about Amanda's weaving education and how it started her down the career path she's on today.
2: I originally wanted to go to school to do um, interior textile design, Um, but a lot of those people are painters, and they they design the textile, and then the weaver textile engineers just assign a weave structure based on the colors in the painting. And so I, so anyway, so I was going to go to school for textile design and I thought, well, first I'll do BFA and then maybe I'll do my master's in textile design. Um, So I went to the Kansas city art Institute uh, and got my BFA from there. It was awesome. Um, And I learned weaving from Uh, my the chair of the department there Pauline she's wonderful and I owe everything to her is she is she still there uh yeah she is I can't imagine how much longer she'll be there um I know she was ready to retire when I was there yeah and that was a while ago um, but so anyway, so I went uh to do my BFA there and entered into the fiber department. And as part of the fiber program, you have to learn everything. Um so I learned how to weave, and then I think like most weavers, once I started weaving, I was like, and now there is nothing else I can do. <laughs> that happened to me almost the exact yeah. same thing. <laughs> Mhm and then also that made the whole textile design process feel a lot less appealing because like I said you're not you're not weaving at that point you're just you know like sort of color by number right. and then someone some other kind of engineer down in the warehouse is like running the mill machine and I didn't want to lose that connection with the textile
0: yeah so what drew you to textiles like is that something that you grew up in your family appreciating or was it just it just sort of happened
2: um yes and no uh my my grandmother on my mom's side uh was a tailor her whole career Um, and she worked altering clothes for i don't even know how many years um and but then in addition to that, my mom, when she, when I was young, she would do a lot of like cross stitch and embroidery. Um, but it wasn't necessarily like when with my kids, I sit down and I'm like, all right, let's learn how to do this new thing. It wasn't really like that, where it was like part of our lives all the time. Um, but I guess by osmosis, yeah, it was. Um, and then I, I don't know, I wanted to do furniture design for like a hot minute in high school. Um but the programs that I looked into were in cities I didn't want to live in because that's really important when you're 18. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're yeah. like, nah, maybe not. Maybe I'll give up my dreams to live in a different city.
1: <laughs> well, you know what's important.
2: Um, yeah, exactly. Um, but anyway, so I ended up at the Kansas City Art Institute, and, and um, I don't know. In some ways, it feels like the rest is history, but it's also – like a long winding road from there.
0: So did you go directly into weaving professionally out of college or was that kind of a transition into it?
2: Um, I tried to go directly into weaving professionally. I had, I set up a studio practice right out of, out of college. And I, um, as part of my studio agreement, I agreed to manage and run the studio space. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really ended up taking a lot more of my time than I anticipated. So I was functioning as a landlord and every time I would try to get work done, there would be people in and out of my studio all the time. Um, Cause it also, the like center area functioned also as like a co-working space. So even if you didn't have a studio, you could come and use the internet and make coffee. And so it was a lot of you know, my friends that I had gone to college with and it was, it was hard to really get a devoted practice and create work and focus on that through that season. Um, and then I got married and had kids right away, which was unexpected, but wonderful. Um, and as many makers who are mothers will tell you, that also comes with a lot of interruptions and distraction and difficult to make work. And, um, but it just, it was something that was always really important to me and something that I felt like, you know, I would wait tables or work at a coffee shop for extra money here and there. And that was never, I never was trying to find a different career. I was never pursuing something else. It was always, I'm going to do this for the time being until I can, be a weaver yeah um so i think it was in the fall of 2015 i was i was like okay this is it this is gonna be my real committed attempt to at least see what this can be and at least see what i can do with the skills that i have um and Yeah. I I think the first, the first season that I felt like, okay, I am, I am doing this and I'm making some work and I'm making a little bit of money was probably not until two years later, um, Mm -hmm. in the fall of 2017. Um, but it, it became in, in 2015, it became something that I committed free time to, you know, instead of, I don't know what other, Whatever else hobbies you may right. choose to have. Right. It was like, if I had a spare moment, I would work on weaving and what I wanted to do with it. Yeah.
1: How did you, what sort of equipment did you have uh, when you were starting in 2015? Uh, and how did that grow over time to get to where you are now? Like with mm-hmm. the changes in how much you had to do and your work and your commitment and whatnot?
2: Mm hmm. Um, Well, actually, when I graduated um, the spring of 2009, my weaving professor was like, hey, you need to buy a loom. And AVL is having this great sale and you need to have a production loom because this is what you're going to do. And I was like, yeah, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) So I took out one last additional student loan and bought this massive loom that I lugged around with me. Since 2009 until 2015, when I actually started working on it more seriously, um, so right away I had a 60 inch AVL production loom oh, like nice. at my disposal, and I think, um, I think there are people who like really love weaving as like a meditative process, and I think that's really wonderful. But a lot of times, I feel like I love weaving as like a marathon runner
0: yeah and
2: and like the idea of putting 50 60 75 yards of warp on a loom and like powering through it and then winding it all up on a bolt and being like this is look at this huge thing of fabric that I made that's that's where the joy is for me and so I was really grateful to have that loom right away and I also worked as a TA that first year after I graduated with my weaving professor and I worked a few extra hours to get a smaller Harrisonville four harness loom. Mm -hmm. Um, so for the majority of that interim time, I would do a little bit of work here and there on the production loom, but a lot of my, it was a lot easier access to set up that four harness loom during the interim time. Um, and so I just had those two looms, just, I just had a production loom, no big deal, mm-hmm. um, until 2015. Um, and then I thought, well, you know, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do as a professional weaver. And I thought, well, maybe I want to teach. And so I sort of collected one or two small, like 22-inch looms, like little workshop looms. Um and then two years ago, in the summer of 2018, I um, I happened to be in Nashville for the Porter Flea uh, Maker's Market that they do in Nashville in the summertime. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was for my business like a transformational weekend i went to porter flea which was really exciting for me to have been accepted to that show and to go and to see what the market is like in nashville um and then i also met with um jamie from jamie and the jones which yeah. you guys know um, and after my conversation with jamie i was like okay i have this production loom but i've been just like putting Warp on my loom with like a warping wheel, so I was like, I really should get a tension box if I'm gonna be doing 100 yards at once. And so I were in the hotel, and my husband was with me, and he got on Homestead Weaver, mm-hmm. great little spot to find a loom.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And in his search for a tension box, he saw that Allison from the Tennessee Textile Mill, okay, was um, selling two additional. AVL production looms, and so we sort of just impulse bought them, <laughs> and I brought one home with me that weekend, we know and how I had that to go goes. back, and uh, yeah. yeah, it's you, crazy,
0: it's, <laughs> you know how it goes, once you get one loom, they just sort of, mm-hmm. you just realize that you need more for what you need to do, mm-hmm. yeah, like, yeah. Right, right now we have three AVL looms, which, oh, be still my heart, I love them, but, yeah. like, Sometimes you just got to have that impulse buy and bring it home because you don't know what it could be useful for.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and they're also especially you know when you're buying an older one, you know they all have their characteristics. I'll call it. it. Mm-hmm. You know, they have pieces that may or may not have been replaced with AVL parts, and they do funny things, and they have their own temperament and. Um, so it's nice to be like, well, this one really is great for this fabric, but if I'm weaving this fabric, I really want to be on this loom. And it's almost like they're, they're like your own employees and you're like, want to play to their strengths and assign them the work that they'll be good at and that Mm -hmm. they can serve you well for. And so, yeah, so I, I actually have a fourth, I have four, so I have the AVL loom that I bought out of college and I bought two from Allison and I I actually have a fourth loom that I bought because we were looking at some warehouse space Mm -hmm. to sort of expand into, Um, but that has been put on hold for a myriad of reasons. Um, Mm -hmm. So I just have it in storage, and it makes me so sad. I'm like, no. It needs to be. It needs to be used. Was, yes, it's so <laughs> sad. And sometimes I'm like, I just need to sell it so someone can use it. And my voice of reason slash my husband is like, Well, just wait a minute. So I have uh probably five or six small little workshop looms that are mostly in storage. I had a couple of workshops scheduled for April um, and those are on hold right um for now and that's been interesting and
0: do you find that you have to supplement your production weaving with teaching like do you have to kind of pivot and do multiple kind of careers within weaving to keep it sustainable
2: um I think uh, yes and no I mean I think I think f- committing to production weaving, which is what I have done 90% of my work for the last almost three, two two and a half years, um, has been in some ways really freeing because you have these bigger clients who are committed to you and they come to you for what they need and it's a bigger paycheck all at once instead of having to push and push and push. And you can sort of ease up on the social media because you have one client that is providing a percentage of your income and you have two others that are filling out the rest. Um, but at the same time, it feels like you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. Right. S- sort of a thing. Um, Cause you
0: never like what's happening now. You never know what's going to happen. Like-
2: absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, I think, yeah, I, I have always wanted to teach. I worked as a TA for, um, a year and a half after I graduated from college and I loved it. And I think, I think I would have loved to just focus on that and have that be the majority of my income, but it hasn't worked that way for me. And I'm okay with that. So I think I I am drawn back to it, to teaching repeatedly because I want it and not necessarily because I feel like I need it to sustain my income. Uh, but I'm also extremely privileged that the income that I make can be flexible. That's doable for us um, yeah. because my husband has his own career. Um And I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to gloss over that because I know for me when I wasn't able to work and I wasn't able to be doing the making that I wanted to do I always was like how do they get to have it all and I don't get to have it all if I had to do it alone and this was like my full-time income and I didn't have anything else I would have to work a lot harder than I do right yeah (laughs) um
0: we know exactly how that goes for the longest time Eric was working a full-time job while I was starting this business up and Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have been able to get it to this point where he could join me mm-hmm. without that extra support. So it is definitely, we have that privilege of having that support. But we also, we what we do, we work our butts off for.
2: Absolutely. To make Absolutely. it all
0: worthwhile. Mm-hmm.
2: I think, um, and I think it's interesting that, like I was thinking about, um pricing our work and how much that affects your income. And I remember when we were looking into warehouse space and I was like, okay, well, I'll be able to have all my looms, like fully functioning. And then I can be making all this work. And then I was like, well, practically speaking, like you can't, I, for sure, I can't physically weave 60 hours a week on a fly shuttle. I can't do it. I have already sustained rotator cuff issues in one shoulder that i can't function that way so then it's like bringing on an employee and the expense of that and what that does to the amount of overhead that you're charging in your price points and it's just it gets so complicated so quickly yeah what was it like bringing on an
0: employee like what Um, what was the impetus that brought that forward
2: So I, what it came down to was investing in my own future. I had gotten some traction with a couple of my wholesale clients and was bringing in a bunch of work, but I couldn't get it done. And I um, just, my kids were still really young. They weren't going to school. And for us, it was a priority to not just put them in daycare, just to be somewhere else. Um, you know, sending them to school is great because they're learning, but daycare was not something we wanted. And so I had all this work to do and I had no time to do it. And so I couldn't, the truth is I really couldn't afford to have an employee, but I needed an employee in order to afford to have the employee. Yeah. Sort of a chicken <laughs> chicken and egg situation. Right um and so i'm fortunate enough that here in madison uh where i live um there's a weaving a small little weaving pro- program in the school of human ecology so i was able to contact oh. the professor there and got a number of really incredible incredible applicants through her and i love them all so much that it made it really hard to even choose one and um it was really, it was really great. Um, because then one, one student who I wasn't able to hire was able to come and do an internship. So then I had
0: oh cool
2: even more hands than I really needed available and it was really great and helpful. And it's a, you know, it, it's, I think with everything, when, when you're starting something like this, where it feels like there isn't a guidebook, there's not like, I'm sure with restaurants, there's a f- set formula. This is how you price your food, right? but it's not the same when it's like handmade items. And I can make this thing faster than someone else, but somebody else could make this thing faster than me. And then how do you value them and right, all that kind of stuff. So I think with employees as well, I have been really fortunate with my studio assistant um, that she is a diamond and a jewel. And I could not do any, I couldn't do this without her. And I've told her that so many times and she is flexible and she can work when I need her. And she doesn't need the work when I don't need her. And when she's here, she loves it. And my kids are, they come up and they're like, hey, do you want to see this weirdo thing that I made? And she's like, yes. Yes. Absolutely want to see this thing you made. And she just fits. And it's been really great. And I think hiring an employee definitely is scary because not only do you know you are going to be spending this much money but the additional money of unemployment insurance and taxes and you, yeah. I don't know those numbers and I don't know how to figure them out and I don't know where to start. And so I contact my accountant and I actually um, have been using Square payroll service, just mm-hmm. a little plug for that. Um, it's really been super easy and super great. So if you guys, if anyone out there is looking for how to pay an employee, I would suggest looking into it because it's, I, I use Square for a lot of other parts of my business and for sending invoices and for cash wrap at markets. And Mm -hmm. so it's been really seamless to integrate into what I do anyway.
0: Yeah. We, we just, like right before like quarantine hit and everything we had Uh just started searching out for our first employee we like put had a couple people come try out the looms and then everything Mm -hmm. froze so it's like okay i still have all this work i have to do and i was gonna have an employee do it but i now have the time
2: Yeah, for sure. My um, my assistant, fortunately, has a loom in her apartment, so I was oh. able to take a couple of warps over to her. <laughs> nice. And be like, can you just weave this at home and just call me when it's ready? And, nice. But it's definitely been interesting to try and figure out life Yeah. in a pandemic.
1: Do you weave at home?
2: I do. Um, okay. My studio is in our back living room, slash in our basement and it takes over everything (laughs) we know that yeah we we just
0: moved from our
2: first house
0: the entire house was all studio space we Mm -hmm. there wasn't a loom in the kitchen bathroom and bedroom but we died in the bathroom but we died in the bathroom you
2: gotta die somewhere that's right right.
0: so this is an upgrade where it's now all in the basement so Mm -hmm. we actually have living space
2: but, That's really great.
0: Yeah, do you do you find that there's challenges working at home, especially with like a handcraft that you have to start and stop with like mm-hmm. kiddos around and mm-hmm. other life obligations?
2: Um, mm-hmm, absolutely, it is bittersweet. It is really wonderful when I can sit and work on something, and my kids are at the kitchen table working on something, and we're all together and being productive. It is not really wonderful when I have a deadline. And I, um, weaving can be sometimes so frustrating when there's like, and then this problem, and then this problem, and then this problem. And when you add children into that who don't, are, are still learning boundaries and are still learning human interaction and appropriate times to interrupt, um, it can be also very frustrating. So I, but for right now, it's really best for us and for our family, for me to be 90% available and 10% working. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. It makes a great life.
1: Talk about um, when things go wrong. We had a, we have a old make Homer that we got from a woman down near New York city. And Mm -hmm. we've been weaving on it on and off. I've been doing rugs on it and all Tegan's been doing some stuff on it. We sample on it sometimes and whatnot. And we're, we put a sample on about two weeks ago for some weft faced uh, material. Mm. And uh, Tegan Tegan's new to it. And so I was showing her like how tight to get it and whatnot. So it gets a really nice, good beat. And... I put the weight down on it. I like put my weight down on it. We got it real nice, and then I lifted the first two um, shafts up, and the apron ripped between the first two ties. And I was like, "Tegan goes, uh oh."
0: It just <laughs> it just started at those first two ties, and then the yeah. whole entire apron uh. just ripped apart
1: Released, yeah and
0: i yes oh i just stood there and i was like well i don't know how to fix this mm-hmm. this is a nightmare we ended up just using yeah. we just used texlav ties to tie to the cloth bar but it was still like oh just one thing after another
1: yeah we cannibalized mm-hmm. a uh, countermarch loom so that we could continue oh. weaving on the smart yeah, yeah. Yeah. So someday we'll have to get more text off. Yeah.
2: Yeah, for sure. I think (laughs) I think weaving is like twenty five percent textile knowledge and seventy five percent the ability to problem solve. Oh (laughs) yeah. And also you have to be like an
0: engineer, a woodworker, absolutely a mathematician. You have to have so many skill sets. Which Absolutely No one tells you when you start out weaving.
2: No one, no one cuz there's no there's no loom tech that you can
0: call. No. Mm. Some sometimes if you're lucky, you can get a hold of the loom manufacturer and be like something weird is happening. But for the most part, you're kind of at your own. Yeah, I mean, if dis- the loom
1: manufacturer is even still in business.
0: Oh yeah. That's true. true. For or sure. Or
1: making that model loom, we got a uh, Clement which mm-hmm. from what we can find out was made by a company in Canada that is still in business under another name but there i guess there's one person there that still knows about the looms because they were yeah. made you know a few decades ago and then they stopped making right. them so it's a very it's a we have a 10 foot direct tie up for shaft so that we can do rugs oh, yeah. and big blankets and stuff on it and it's just sort of like every time you you look at it you just hope that you don't break it by looking at it <laughs> You know, much less using yeah, it. Yeah,
2: it's unnerving for sure. I did see um this was a while back, so I don't even know where you would find it. But I saw someone weaving on a ten-foot loom like that, and they had built a bench with like a where instead of a seat, it was like a trough, and they set a skateboard in it, and they would just slide oh. from one side to another. I thought that was so smart. That is so smart, especially I've if you had to.
0: Yeah, the. Usually I try to weave on the 60 inch loom with the fly box, Mm -hmm. like I'm done stretching my arms out like that. Mm -hmm. But every once in a while we get an order for the 10 foot loom and I usually have to have Eric on the other side and Mm -hmm. it's a process or have Mm -hmm. somebody
1: come over and help.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So just to pivot a little bit, what, what inspires your work? What influences your designs? cuz they're so they're so clean and open like I feel like you have so much space yeah. within your colors. I love it.
2: Thank you. I um I honestly think it comes from this is going to sound silly. I think it comes from being unsure about how to use color. When I graduated mm-hmm. hi- uh, high school, when I graduated from college, so much of my work was gray or shades of gray or maybe some blue or and I have spent a lot of time just looking at images and thinking about the colors and the way that they interact and so I think when I have this like timidness of combining the wrong colors (laughs) right I you know, I just use a little less or I just am a little more reserved with it to see how it works and then and then go from there. But I think as far as like coming with a new design, a new fabric, um, most often, I feel like what happens is I have an image or some visual reference um that has been with me for a while that I've mm-hmm. come back to and referenced and seen and known. And and then it will be matched with a yarn or a dye color or something in the physical world that is real that I can touch. Um, that's not just an image on Pinterest or on my wall. And I'm able to combine the two. So it comes from this space of, you know, it's not... I think it's, I think the hardest new textiles for me to design are when someone is like, I have this own idea that's mine and I want you to feel inspired by it. And that, that doesn't work for me. I I need it to be something that I have chewed on and known and spent time with and then find a way to apply it to a textile Mm -hmm. that fits, that fits with what I it almost is like a feeling, that maybe even the textile doesn't look like the image, or whatever reference it is, but it feels the same. Yeah. Um, like right now, I've been super into. Um, I'm gonna probably say this terribly wrong, but Tetsuo Aoki, a Japanese print woodblock printmaker, oh, I posted yes. some stuff on my stories the yeah. other day. And I just can't stop like looking at them. And there's also um, an, a ceramicist that has some similar shapes and colors. Uh, I believe it's Clay Canoe. They have a really gorgeous Instagram feed if oh, you're cool. looking for something to look at. But it has that. It has very similar, like these shapes that move and feel very sensual with like different tones and shades and. I have been really inspired by that lately and I'm working on some textile that will evoke that same feeling for me. Um, but the the warp, the dyed warps that I have done um, primarily for Jamie and the Jones um, and then just recently for me some of my own work um, that that line, the way that the lines move and interact with each other is is something that it, it, that is a shape that I have been making since I was in college. I used to do these, like, in my painting class that I took. I was like not even drawing, let alone painting, but I would take and I would just like sew long strips of yarn to correlate with like sound waves. Oh, um, nice! And it, it it's that same shape where it's like series of lines. And the negative space. And, and a lot, a lot of my work is like that, where it's like a, a shape or a form or color that I have spent time with. And I think that's really, I think that's really valuable as a maker because a lot of times, especially when you're just getting started, you're like, well, I'll try this and I'll try that and I'll try this. And I think I think holding your cards a little closer to your chest before you're ready to show them to the world can be really valuable and can produce a lot of really incredible treasure. I don't yeah. know that's how it works for me anyway.
0: Yeah, it, so. seem, it seems like a really special process because you're really taking in every element of the image or the feeling that you're sitting with to really kind of dilute that into your textiles and really have that show it seems like a really great process
2: no yeah, it's it's been a long time coming you know i yeah. think i th- i remember graduating from college and thinking like boy i don't i just don't know anything i have a bfa and i just don't i just don't know I, anything I, about visual arts or any you know and so i think i think sticking with it is yeah. It's it's worth it's worth it.
0: So how do you find that you balance your creativity and this inspiration with working with clients or like working with a yeah. uh, wholesale or something like that? Do you have to find like a in the middle or is it do you kind of pick which clients you want to work with based off of how much freedom they allow you?
2: That's an excellent question. Um the majority Um, well, my, my first like large scale wholesale customer was Jamie and Hannah from Jamie and the Jones. Um, and they have hands down been like ideal clients for me. Um, and our aesthetic and the things that we've been able to produce together have just made sense for both of us where I will present something to them and they will say, Absolutely. And then it has has this sort of magical quality to it that I don't really understand, (laughs) but I'm really thankful for. And so then having to branch out and work with other clients as well, a lot of them either have no idea what they want Mm -hmm. or they have never worked with a hand weaver before. Jamie and Hannah have been working with hand weavers for much longer than I've been working with wholesale customers. And they had a really great baseline knowledge of how the price structure works. And the more you order, the cheaper it is. And just all of the things that you want to convey to your clients that they may not know. Yeah. So that made it really great to have them as a first step. Um, And then from there, I have one client who he knows what he wants and he brings me the yarn and is like, this is what I want you to weave, make it look good. And I say, sure. (laughs) Sounds great. Um, A lot of the work that I've done with color grown cotton um, from Sally Fox, who is amazing and her career is like a dream um, has been through him and that's been really fun, uh, in that way. I don't know. I think the, the bigger struggle that I've had with clients is when they just don't know what they want and they yeah. say, just send me some samples. You know, I'm like, well, sometimes it takes like seven hours to make a six inch sample. So mm-hmm. I can't just send you 15 samples. And then maybe you say no to all of them. Right. Um, And sometimes you think, well, I do have some samples laying around, but I had this client in mind or this client in mind. Um, And that has made it tricky. And I haven't exactly nailed that down yet. There are definitely people who have reached out to me um, where I have looked briefly at their work and felt like the aesthetic was too different Mm -hmm. um, to mesh because I don't want to I don't want to make work that I don't feel inspired about or yeah that I don't feel passionately about um and then also I've had other clients that I would have loved to work with but I didn't have the time at, at that time and so I've had to wait list them and then when I'm ready they're not or things like that um as far as just weaving custom yardage um But, but yeah, the process is, I feel different with each client and Mm, I would love to streamline it. I just am not sure of the best way forward with that.
1: Do you charge for samples?
2: Uh, Historically, no, but it has been easy enough for me to the the clients that I have moved forward with and sent samples to where we have worked together. I've only had one client where I made samples and I sent them and then I never heard back, Mm -hmm. which was not awesome, (laughs) especially because this particular client wanted a specific yarn type that I, I hadn't, I wasn't opposed to using, but I hadn't used. So I had to source new yarn. I had to order a minimum quantity and I had to make the samples and, do i invested a lot in it um and that definitely has made me leery of of having that experience again but on the other hand everyone else that i've worked with i have felt so sure about our collaboration Mm -hmm. that it has more than paid off um and felt like I do, I do include a small design fee in my overhead charge when I am calculating my prices. I have like this crazy spreadsheet that doesn't even make any sense to me anymore because it has too many <laughs> of its own, has its own mind where, mm-hmm. you know, there's certain sums that are created that I've set it to create, but I don't know. And it just feels like its own creature that is out of control. But I do, when I price out for yardage, I do include a small amount for a design fee because I don't charge for samples, so so I don't it's know. kind
0: of, it's kind of a give and take. Like you, you've given up charging for the samples, but you've also added more value to your design time. Correct
2: for mm-hmm. it, yeah. And that's yeah. When I had that experience, obviously it's really disappointing to put time and labor and energy and emotional energy and artistic energy into something and then have it not pan out. But that's been one experience compared right. with 20 or, you know, I I don't know how many other samples that I've created and have come to fruition and have been very profitable for me. Um, so I can't throw out the whole system because one egg was bad, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I do know, I, you know, I have considered it as far as like charging for samples and how... how how you even go about that because you can't i don't know i wouldn't want to pay three hundred dollars for a six inch sample i might not like or i don't know do you guys know of good ways do you guys charge for your samples we yeah we do
0: charge for our samples we usually do we charge less than it costs
1: us we essentially figure we've got x amount of clients that will move ahead and won't move ahead so we sort of take an average sampling cost if we figured it out like we were making something to sell them just like Mm -hmm. retail kind of Um, Mm -hmm. and then we sort of divide it by how many of a hundred we think won't come through and then that way somebody we I think for us, it helps pre-qualify people. If they're not interested in spending a nominal amount on a sample, then they're not interested in spending a solid amount on fifty yards of fabric. Because if they were, that's really smart. Yeah, we feel like if they're serious, they'll throw down a couple hundred bucks for a set of samples, and then that helps us at least, at minimum, sample cost covers Mm -hmm. material. And then we yeah. eat labor.
0: And I usually with the samples, it's I usually don't send off like one one piece of fabric. That's usually it covers at least like six or seven options. Yeah,
2: for them yeah. to pick from.
0: So, like, I just sent out samples to a client yesterday, and I think I had maybe ten samples in a box for that. Mm-hmm. I had a flat rate fee to cover all of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah,
2: it's it's a I little.
0: Go, oh, ahead. go ahead. No, no, no. no well, you go think,
2: ahead. Uh, as my thoughts are formulating, I think part of the reason I hesitate to to establish a routine of charging for samples is because the the work that I do I feel like is designed specifically for an individual, and there is a process for me of agreeing to work with that individual mm-hmm. or that company or mm-hmm. et cetera, and so. I feel like, I don't know, I guess I'm using my, like, I don't even know what you would call that. Just intuition. Yeah. About, about a pro it's more of like a collaboration and like, we've agreed to do this together as opposed to, I don't do, I don't do a lot of work where it's like, Oh, you're a retail shop and you want some blankets and I'll make a blanket exclusively for your store. And it's like a business deal. It's, it truly is has been I'm a maker and you're a maker and we want to do something together and I will make the fabric and you will make a garment and so there is a relationship that's built there before the sample is even sent and I think I think for me that has has made it lean more towards this side of there's going to be time that's spent yeah when Mm -hmm. you Sorting through that process. And to for me to put it as a business deal right at the beginning hasn't felt right for me yet, but that doesn't mean it's not ever going to feel right.
1: Yeah. Do you have a, when you're doing projects that are, like you're doing yardage projects where you're weaving a bunch of fabric, do you have a minimum that you put on the loom? And then the second part to that is how much do you, like what's your ideal warp length if you're going to like put a bunch on?
2: Um. The minimum yardage that I, um, do with all my clients for, an, it, it's two, there's two parts to answer that question of a minimum. I will, I always offer one time a three yard quantity so that they can have a full piece of the fabric and make a garment with it. And really, because as a maker for me, I can order a sample of fabric in my, for my own personal wardrobe and be like, yeah, this is going to be perfect for this thing I want to make. And then I order it and I get it in and I make the garment and I'm like, didn't really fulfill that thing I was looking for. So I always offer that with each fabric. One time they can order three yards. It's pretty expensive per yard because I have just said, this is, this is sort of the investment of you trying to figure out of, so maybe that's where I recoup some of my sample costs. Yeah, sure. Um, But then going forward from there, the minimum yardage that I do is 15, and then I give them a price point of 15 to 25 yards. It's this much per yard, 25 to 50 yards, et cetera. Um, I think ideal warp length for me is probably somewhere in the 30 to 50 range because I (laughs) tend to... I tend to get distracted and want to move on to the next thing. So if it's more than 50 yards, I I do feel like I get to this point where I'm like, just over it, (laughs) which obviously it's work. And so you finish if you have more than that and it's great. And it's still something that you've made with your, you know, all of your strength and might and mental strength and willpower. um, Sometimes because of, Loom the way that looms are um but i think ideal is probably like 30 to 50 yards yeah that's i that's, feel like i can
0: that's where i'm Go about ahead. too about 50 yards is when i hit the all right i'm over this i'm ready to move on mm-hmm. let's just get this done but mm-hmm. right before then i'm like in the marathon i'm doing the work i'm getting it done absolutely yeah. absolutely so to get back to working with your clients, are, do you find that because you're working at it at more of a collaborative approach that you're building more of a community within your supply chain? Like you're, te- you're educating them how to work with weavers and at the same time, they're educating you on how to price your work competitively.
2: Potentially, yeah. I think... Um, that's a really I like that um I think the two clients I've worked with the most um Jamie and the Jones and then another client who has ordered a plethora of fabric but has yet to really release anything with it which is kind of driving me crazy (laughs) because I want to see it I want to see it exist in the world and I want to see it live and um but anyway I think both of those for sure have felt like the strongest sense of we're making something together and we're both profiting and we're both, uh, feeling whole as a maker. I don't know if that's even the right term, but you feel like you're doing something that you want to be doing and it's great and it's exciting. Um, I think, I don't know as much I've learned from them, how to price my work as much as it has just forced me to figure it out. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a fine balance as far as pricing your work, you have to reevaluate and you have to re assess. And every time you get something new, like I just signed up to, to do ship station, for shipping everything, which has been super awesome, but it's a monthly subscription. You have to recalculate your pricing structure. But at the same time, you can't change your prices every time your client reorders something. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a fine balance uh, for sure. But I think working with other people has... I think the greatest benefit that it's had for me is um, I'm like super obliger. So if I have a deadline for someone else that is getting done, that is absolutely, that work is going to get done. There is a very long list of projects that I have wanted to do just because I want to do them, that some of them get done and some of them don't. And obviously some of that is because I have work for clients that is a guaranteed payday, and have to prioritize that, um, but some of it is just—I just don't have a deadline, so yeah. mm-hmm. it so tomorrow. it just kind of floats in the ether mm-hmm. and waits. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I'm- but it, but the sense of community, for sure, I think is especially because weaving, as you know, can be so solitary, and you, you know, you guys obviously have each other working with each other, and I am in my house very often with one or all of my children mm-hmm. in the house. Um, but the, the actual work, you're doing it alone yeah. most of the time, unless you're weaving on a 10-foot loom and you're tossing the shuttle to each other. Right. Um, <laughs> um, so it's, but it's, it is nice to feel like I have someone else that I'm working with. And collaborating with and even just having my studio assistant here there are some days when she gets here and i am just like dip, 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 dip. and then i'm like okay we have to work we have to get to work now <laughs> right <laughs> uh yeah that's kind um, but,
0: of that's kind of why we started this podcast is because so many weavers work by themselves
2: absolutely. and that
0: we just we need to talk and share and be chatty because almost every weaver i've talked to is a chatty person which you would never expect
1: well when you get them out of their studio where they're all they are is focused on their work right mm-hmm. it's it, it becomes easier because you already have that connection you understand each other in the sense that you know what each other do so it's not mm-hmm. it's not a long road to connect it's, absolutely oh, I, I do this, you do that, and now we've got a thousand things to talk about that we can connect on.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. The last loom that I sold just this, a week or so ago, um, we were messaging each other on Facebook, and she was like, I was like, well, I'm trying to label everything, but you don't know when you're talking to somebody on the internet that you've never met, like, how much do they know about weaving? Do they mm-hmm. know what they're getting into? Right. And she was like, oh, I know what I'm doing. I've done this. I have all these, I have like this many Structo looms. I have a, a floor loom that there's only, apparently Structo looms have a floor loom and there's only three known to exist. And what? she has one of them. What? And I was like, can I please get in touch with you when the pandemic is over and come see this thing because uh-huh. she lives in my town. And I was like, I need to see it. I That's need to amazing. Know. Yeah, it was but it's, it's like you're saying where you, it's like you're opening this box of, I have all this random knowledge that is like not useful to so like 95% of the people that I know mm-hmm. that yep. I can't talk to them about it, but then I can get on the internet with you. And I can say Structo Loom, and you know what I'm talking about. Oh, and my
0: (laughs) eyes light up, and I get so excited. We have one little uh, table Structo, which is up in our closet right now. And it's like, it's just, it's one of my little prized possessions.
2: I have a Structo. Yes, absolutely. And I think, yeah, I think it's really, or or like Facebook groups, where Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. other weavers are connecting. Those have been so fun to see, and... I think, I don't know, there is a Weaver's Guild here in my town, but I've not been able to really participate in it because of life and busyness and kids and all that that gets in the way of meeting times that work for everyone else. And I think having community in this way is really great.
0: Yeah. Do you... Hmm. That's interesting. Do you find that the Weaver's Guild would be do you have other options to connect with your local guild or is it only those meeting times that you're able to meet up with them?
2: Um, They do a few other, I still get all the emails. Um, They do a few other like field trip activities. And then they also do um, like a sort of like a gallery show, but at a library um, here in Madison. Um, And then they do, I don't know if they run Uh, textile like a fiber related makers market um at the botanical gardens here i don't know if they run it or if they just participate in it um so they do other things aside from just the meeting but the meeting times for me for the last i've lived here for five years now um it's like right at my kid's bedtime and for a long time my husband was working evenings and i don't know it's it's i don't yeah it has just not been something that i can make a commitment to every month right Right. Mm -hmm. and i I can't you know it it works for everyone else you know so it's hard I find that's a challenge with a lot of weavers, especially
0: working weavers, is like we want to participate in our local guilds. We want to participate in our weaving community. But we work so hard Mm -hmm. and a lot of times that just the times don't mesh up, maybe because there's a generational gap between the majority of the guild members and the young professional weavers that are coming up. But Mm -hmm. I also I don't know where I was going with that. But I think it's just, it's an interesting observation to make note of that. Maybe that's something Mm -hmm. that guilds should look into opening up more resources for their professional weavers to get involved.
2: Yeah. I think um, also there's something to be said for, um, there's a term for this that I can't think of, uh, but of like catering to... Like everyone is catering to this new, the newest weavers, and like, oh, here's a really basic question that we all know how to answer, and here's a really basic thing, and, and sure, there are lectures about more advanced subjects, but um, the guild here meets once a month for I think eight or nine months of the year, so that's mm-hmm. the and the first meeting is always show and tell of what everyone's been doing over the summer, so then there's only eight lecture series. And if a lot of those I already have been exposed to, and it's the choice between just a social experience and relearning some techniques I already know versus getting some work done, then I have to choose getting work done. Yeah, Um, And those resources are incredibly valuable to people who are just learning to weave or who are hobby weavers and have maybe just been weaving plain weave for 12 years and are finally discovering new weave structures and i think that the weavers guild is really valuable but as a professional weaver i think there there are things that i would be looking for that aren't necessarily applicable to the broader audience right yeah. what
1: sort of things would you be looking for
2: Ooh, excellent question I would be looking for something that I would be like, oh, I'm going to that for sure. Um, I have a very basic knowledge of eCOt dyeing. Um, the, the dyed warps, a lot of the dyed warps that I do are loosely based on that um, technique. I would love to see someone talk about it who really knows what they're doing. Like I watch these videos on YouTube of these intricate Ecott designs and I just am like, I have wound warps on and they do not look like that. <laughs> you know, like how do you get each one to line up the whole length of the whole warp? And like listening to someone talk about that would be really fascinating. But also I had Instagram conversation texting um with justin from the Burroughs garrett yes Yes. he's fascinating um but i asked him about he built his own fly shuttle boxes for Mm -hmm. one of his looms a while back and i had some interest in doing that for a 60 inch leclerc loom that i had um and so i was like I asked him like one pretty basic question. And then like two hours later, I was like, I have to get to work. This has been like the most fulfilling conversation I've had in forever. And just like a wealth of knowledge like that from someone who, I think he teaches on loom mechanics and like the function of the machine and how like small adjustments change things and he is just like so i would if he was talking at my local weaver's guild i would not miss it <laughs>
0: he so we actually just had him come to our weaver's guild yeah
2: oh, awesome. <laughs> he's so jealous he
0: is such he is such a joy and he's also on our list of people to talk to on this podcast so great i love it yeah but he is to be able to reach out via Instagram or online just to mm-hmm. reach out to somebody and have that wealth of knowledge mm-hmm. has been so helpful. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially I, because I started really going at my business around the same time that you did. So probably mm-hmm. around 2016 or yeah, so. Yeah, we
1: were sort of, I mean, we'd had like a couple of wholesale clients since like 2012, eleven, and it was sort of a part-time thing, we'd do it when an order came in, and we'd weave some stuff off and send mm-hmm. it out, and then you got a full-time job, and then sort of at a certain point, you decided it would just not was not what you wanted to do, right? Yeah, yeah, and then we sort of started make taking the steps, start you know making those steps towards really doing this for real.
0: But the only the only way I think I was able to do it, partially Eric's help and him working at the same time, but also being able to talk to other weavers on Instagram, like to see that other people were like making things and like, I'm always so psyched when you have a big warp on because I'm like, I am (laughs) not the only one who loves a big warp. (laughs) Mm hmm. So it's like your work is always inspirational. I love Hedelin and Heels and Yes Ah uh, her uh, I love her fabric. I love her waffle weave. Mm. Um, yeah. So it's been I totally get that. I get that not that the guild may not necessarily have what you're looking for, but there's other resources mm. that you could reach out to, like online or finding online guilds or even just chatting with us on a podcast. Exactly.
2: Exactly. (laughs) And I think, I think a key thing to know is like, like I was saying, having an an ECOT discussion at my Weavers Guild, I don't just want to know about ECOT because I think I have some basic understanding. I want to know about it on a production level. Yeah. Like 50 yards, 25 yards of ECOT and the design is the same, You, you know, and that is not something that 90% 90% of weavers want to
0: know about so my my brain just there is i'll remind once we've done once we're done interviewing yeah. there's a profile on instagram i have to send you okay. it'll also be in the it. show notes it will be in the show okay. notes he fantastic it is uh, a weaving company in japan who does mm-hmm. all ecot weaving and you can actually see how they adjust their ecot warps oh, to make yeah. the stripes and the checks, and like they show the mm-hmm. whole process of dying. And he is so receptive. Like I've just messaged oh, him really? a couple times, and he's just like always excited to talk about it. So I, Great. I have to send that to you, and I will. Did you just find it?
1: I did, but I can't say it. Okay, I would butcher that.
0: It's the Shimogawa Kyozo. Okay, which will be in the show notes. I'll send it to you once great. we get off of here. But they have... I love that. But he does production ECOT. And all of his looms are always running. Kind of... And, yeah, so that's definitely... I'm into that. Ooh, okay. My brain just... So exciting. Yeah. <laughs> no, so, great.
1: I think I really do agree with you in the sense that the talks that draw me in the most are the talks where it it gets really deep into one subject. Like we don't, we don't even start like on a, this is what this process is kind of level, but we start on a, this is how I do it. And these are all of the tricks that I've learned. And this technique mm-hmm. comes from this sort of background and this is how they did it. And now we can start adapting it in these different ways with our new um, tools and things like that, mm-hmm. I think those are the most interesting talks, yeah. technical talks, things that are like very difficult to sort of get your mind around until somebody who has a really truly amazing understanding of it can just sort of simplify it for you mm-hmm. I think we 're lucky in our guild that we 've sort of we 've got sort of uh, two guilds in one we 've got a day guild that meets. And they're more of more of the show and tell guild, and let's chat about what we're doing and all that and then we've got an evening guild where we have some show and tell that's a component of it, but often a small component, and then we get more into the talks and techniques and stuff like that during those mm-hmm. sort of evening guilds. But I get the thing where it's like six o'clock and it's time to leave, and I'm like. But I want to finish this.
0: We're in the middle. <laughs> We're in the middle of something on the loom. We gotta yeah. take care of mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, well, I guess we should get to some listener questions. Oh, I have
1: a okay. question.
2: Oh, you have a question?
1: Do you have a favorite uh, structure? Um, I can't. <laughs> yes and
2: no. I think. Um, I. Th- I tend to think that there are sort of two types of weavers. And one is like people who cannot cannot get enough of like really complex, intricate weave structures. And then there's like me where I'm like, I could weave plain weave for the rest of my life. And I am fascinated by it and it's beautiful and just use different yarns combined in different sets and make an infinite quantity of fabric with the one most simple, basic text, textile mm-hmm. structure, you know? And yeah. I think that's really, there is magic in that for me where everything that I do, even the most complex weave structure that I've done for a client or for my business um, is plain weave with a supplemental warp that like, Maybe the supplemental warp does something really cool, but the whole base of the fabric is just plain weave. It's just like right. the same simple. Um, so I guess plain weave is my favorite because I use it all the time. But when I'm looking at other people's work and they're using much more complex weave structures, I, I still love that and I'm like, oh, this is really exciting. Um, I think probably the one I'm drawn to the most. Is waffle weave, but in a, in some sense, the square structure of that is still so similar to plain weave that maybe still seems boring to some people. <laughs> mm-hmm. But waffle is gorgeous. Ah, uh, I, I won't step off of that.
0: Waffle so. waffle weave is so interesting. I it's like the precursor to uh, differential shrinkage for me. So it's mm-hmm. like you can play with the materials in waffle weave and it can shrink and pucker in different ways to get the depth of the cells. I I'm totally, I get it. I, yeah, I can see the magic.
2: You should look up, um, uh, my weaving professor from college. She's Pauline Verbeek court. It's, I'll have to spell it for you if you don't know it, but, um, she does deflected, double weaves that are woven in a merino and then shrunk so uh, it's like it's like those mind game things where the metal is looped together and you're like how does this function it's just yeah. like all these different layers of fabric that are interwoven oh, and cool. then it's felted so it it looks like solid piece it's really gorgeous it's really yeah. gorgeous you should look it up yeah
0: absolutely
1: there's a woman in Massachusetts. her handle on Instagram is plain weave. Her, her name's, name's Lisa Hill. Yeah, and she does amazing deflected double weave. I'll
0: Check her out yeah for mm-hmm. sure. What do you do with your swatches?
2: I I sew a card, like a cardstock onto each one and punch a hole in it and I keep them all on like a binder ring. Cool. So they're like, it's like, it feels sort of like carpet swatches. Um, it's like my big key ring full of all my fabric. And then occasionally I just like flip through it and it's really fun and exciting. Um, but I don't have, I would like to have something that feels a little more organized. That is just sort of, I guess, organized by a timeline I put the new one newest one on the back and add to it um mm-hmm. but that's what I do I just sew little I just take right on my sewing machine sew paper cardstock on there and punch a hole and stick it on the binder ring cool
1: do you have any sort of um routine or system for keeping track of all your weavings
2: I've tried several different methods for me right now what is working is I print out um the, um, you know, like a warp worksheet with the treadling and the tie up and the threading. Um, and then I leave, you know, where ordinarily you would see the weave draft come down into the design. I usually leave that blank and just like scratch chicken, scratch notes on. So I have a clipboard hanging on each of my looms, and I take notes on there or I like tally every time I weave two yards, I make a tally. So I know how far I've gone or, you know, notes about setting the tension at this point, anything you might think of it's super disorganized, but at least I'm writing it down. Mm -hmm, And then I put each page in a binder so I can reference back. And there's a spot at the top to put like a title. So I know which fabric for which client and that kind of thing. Um, But that's it. It's pretty simple. It's pretty basic. Occasionally I will do where I make a photocopy of the swatch before it's been washed and after but I'm not super consistent with that. Um, Mostly it's just the, the warp or the weaving worksheet with notes on it. Mm -hmm. So another
0: question is how
2: do you price your work? Um, We, I mean, we've touched on that a little bit here and there. I think the, the things that I take most into consideration is what my overhead costs are. Mm -hmm. Um, I try to make an estimate educated guess of how many hours per week I can work. Um, and so then when I calculate out my price, instead of just having my hourly and the materials, I have what my hourly is, the materials and what my business overhead is. I think that was a pretty big breakthrough for me because I uh, initially was like, well, I think in college, they're like, oh, it's your hourly and your materials times two. And that is, in some ways, that works. And in other ways, you're leaving out huge, huge amounts of detail that are important. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So, um, and that also helps then when I translate the work over to an employee and what their hourly wage is. And I can just transfer that overhead number over. Um, So... (sighs) I price my work based on estimated hours. That is the other part that is tricky because you can weave something and then the next time you weave it, it takes longer. And so you have to, um, you have to sort of find an average, I guess, of how many hours something takes you. Actually you, when I was setting out to do my first wholesale, big wholesale, yardage i messaged you and was like what was your experience with jamie and the jones and that's what you said to me was like just make sure you know how long it takes you to weave something yeah because that's so important and it is it's true if you know how how long something is going to take you to make then you're set i think and if you know what your overhead is i think those are the most important things to consider
1: do you have uh, a technique that you use for tracking hours
2: um, uh, well, I track my assistance hours, obviously a little bit like through, through the payroll system. And that's mm-hmm. obviously really detailed because there's like minutes. And then she also, when she clocks in, um, will clock into a specific project, um, so I can log it according to what she's working on. Um, but for myself, a lot of that ends up on that trick, chicken scratch where I'll say, Um, like the first time that I weave something, I'll keep track of, I usually go by two yard increments. So I'll say, this is how many bobbins I need to fill to weave two yards. This is how long it takes me to fill those bobbins. This is how long it takes me to weave all of them off. This is sometimes I'll even write down, like, this is on average, how long it takes to weave one bobbin off. Um, and I do all of that math on the first the first go around. And I think having a really clear image of both the broad strokes and the details that first time helps me to know either, hopefully your estimated price point is like right on spot on, or if it needs a small adjustment before you can continue to weave that, that fabric again. Um, So a a lot of my hours are just logged on that worksheet Mm -hmm. where I'm writing down, numbers of what what time think how long certain things take
1: cool cool yeah what is the biggest mistake you've made
2: well I could go one of two ways with this I think the biggest mistake that I made was uh one time I agreed last minute to take on a project that had a short timeline um and I said uh, this is the most that I can weave as far as the yarn I have in stock um, and the time that I have and when the client came back to me they were like well okay but how about just like a little bit more just like a little bit and I would and I said yes and I I should have not said yes and I should have maintained boundaries because I knew the time that I had and taking on just that little bit more with everything else that is going on in my life with children and you know owning a home and life that exists. Um, And it was a busy time of year right before a big holiday market. And Mm -hmm. I ended up just overdoing it to a point where I went into that market at the end of the season. And I just was like loathe to be there and was exhausted. And you don't want to show up at a market that way because markets are exhausting. (laughs) Right. Yeah.
1: All in and of Um, themselves.
2: Yeah. And I think there were, and I think it's important to say also that taking on that, that warp and that particular project, I ran into so many issues and it's like, those are the, those are the projects where you're like, I shouldn't have taken it. I took on too much and now everything is going wrong that Mm -hmm. possibly can go wrong. And in those moments, if you aren't prepared for that, you just can sort of fall apart because right? yeah. you really sometimes get to the space where you're like, I can't, I can't manage all of these issues. So anyway, I think that was probably the biggest mistake was taking on that warp when I knew that I didn't have the time to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: I think that these mistakes, I, I ask everybody this because I think that it's so important because I feel like... Uh, at least in our practice, weaving is pretty much all mistakes that we're making mm-hmm. and learning from and then not doing that sure. thing again next time.
2: Mm-hmm. If
1: it's like a certain yarn that you put on and you put the wrong tension on it or just just like all these tiny little mistakes. But I think it's so valuable to know that everybody makes mistakes. And it's so interesting to learn about people's mistakes and how they sort of fight through them to become better mm-hmm. at what they do next
2: hmm.
0: So my final question is, what is the best piece of res- best piece of advice you've ever received?
2: Yeah, I think um, I, I once had the privilege of listening to Louisa Podlidge from We Shop Amano um, talk about how to sell your work. She was talking about it specifically in the context of like being at a market and how to interact with your customer, your client. Um, so not necessarily a wholesale client, which is the majority of what I do. Um, but she's the, the, there were so many great things from that talk that I was really grateful to be a part of. But the one thing she said that has stuck with me more than anything else was don't apologize for what your work costs. That's what it costs. And if someone can't afford it, if someone doesn't value it that way, that that is you have to just set that down and walk away because your work costs what it costs. And uh, I think I had I had I I don't like to inconvenience people. So I think I was doing that a lot where I was like, I am so sorry that this is, you know, I'd love to make it cheaper. Is there a way and. And sometimes there's not. There is no way that this can be cheaper. And if you can't afford it, then we'll do something else. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. And that
0: that also lends to bringing more value to textile work. Because so Mm -hmm. many times you go to these craft shows or these markets and there's other crafts that people don't seem to have that same kind of, oh, why is it this much? They can exactly. see it. Mm-hmm. But with textiles, it's not necessarily inherent, the work and everything that goes into it. So I mm-hmm. think that's a great piece of advice to, it costs what it costs, don't apologize for it. Mm-hmm. Because that's only mm-hmm. going to help elevate everybody's work.
2: Exactly. And I think... um, I think with textiles, it's really easy for people who aren't weavers to see it and just think that you you just sewed it or you just did this part or you just, you know, and, it, and I think finding ways to communicate with your client, like this is really what happened to make this piece. Um, having visuals, like printing off a poster of you at the loom or um, I saw... Oh, I think it's Kate or Katie, I, forgive me, I can't remember, um, from West Ash Designs. She's based out of the Twin Cities. She was at mm-hmm. the last market that I was also at, and she had um, like a little tablet with a looped video of her weaving. And I thought oh, that was cool. so brilliant um, because people, I think when they're just shopping, they don't realize the effort and the energy. You, It's so easy to see something that's ceramic and, and see the carving and see the molding and have this, and it's a weighty thing and it's heavy and it feels valuable just holding it. But if you don't understand textiles and you don't understand how they're made, it's harder to see that work. I think for some people. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think to some degree, making a beautiful textile is sort of like making it look effortless
2: True. Like yes. when you when you mm-hmm. come
1: across just uh out of this world piece of fabric and something that you know we are actively achieving to a lesser degree um mm-hmm. I think that it looks like that was just sort of what it was always meant to be and this person just sort of
0: you don't you don't see the hand of the maker as in much, it. yeah. as much. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, because it is a machine, it is a mechanized process, you know, right? it's not, unless you're doing, like, hand-manipulated work, that you can see, um, but I like, I like that, what you said about, um, yeah, it's, I don't want to repeat everything you said, because you just already <laughs> said it. No, that's okay. I, I agree. Um, nice. I like that about it looks effortless. That's how you know that it's quality. Because I I do feel that way when I roll up a big piece of fabric to send it away. I love how it... And even when I'm weaving it, I love that it's pristine, that the lines are straight, that the fell line is straight, that this is even when it gets all the way to the back of the loom and it's winding on the uptake beam. I love when the edge is like nice and clean. Oh, and it just perfectly lines Uh, up. (laughs) That's my
0: favorite. I get so excited.
2: On the AVL loom, when you, uh, with the cloth uptake, if that yarn runs out and you have to like, take it off and like wind it back up and put it back on. I'm always like, don't touch the fabric. You know, I don't want to put it back on and have it be all shifted. mm -hmm. Right silly but it's not you know i like that it has has this look of like it was always meant to be that way i like i liked the way you worded that
0: yeah cool
1: the do you um sorry i just have a curious question that came out of those that little talk do you uh prefer to do wholesale versus resale or vice versa
2: I think I probably prefer wholesale. I prefer, you know, cause it's like, I have started to do more selling yardage on the website and it is, there is something, you know, you can cut a yard or two yards of fabric and package it and ship it out. And that's great. There is something for me that is so satisfying about like hauling, a 52 inch box that weighs 60 pounds down to the post office and being like, Oh yeah. (laughs) Why don't you send that off? That's right. Like I did this, I made this, it has weight, it has physicality. It has almost like a sculptural element. Something about that is really satisfying to me. So I think I would have to say, even though I do, there are aspects I love about like retailing or selling my own work or wholesaling, uh, products, as opposed to fabric there are things i enjoy about that but i think selling wholesale in large quantities is probably the most satisfying thing for me at this point cool
0: i'm into it yeah me too (laughs) sweet well thank you so much for taking the time and chatting with us absolutely thank you
2: for having me yeah this has been so much fun yeah yeah it's been great I love getting
0: into the deep business talk. It's nice to get a different perspective.
1: Yeah, it's cool to see how our work has progressed over the last few years.
0: A special thank you to Comfort Cloth Weaving for sponsoring the podcast this week. You can find them at ComfortClothWeaving.com.
1: Another thank you goes out to Rawhead the Recluse for providing music for our podcast. Find him at RawheadTheRecluse.Bandcamp.com.
0: Don't forget to send your questions to hello at ProWeaverPod.com.
1: If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe now. It will help us reach more weavers and people who are passionate about hand-created textiles.
0: You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Professional Weaver Society, and you can get full show notes at ProWeaverPod.com.
1: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Professional Weaver Podcast. We look forward to sharing more with you each Friday. Bye. Bye. Bye!